morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Sorry, Nathan, I didn't leave you much room up here. Next time, I'll take it down. Well, good to see you all. We're... Um, walking through a series called The Extent of Grace, in which we look at uh, stories in the Gospel of Luke that are unique to his Gospel. Um, And this week, full disclosure, verses 8 through 10 are unique to Luke, uh, but the parable before that is not. So, uh, it's basically the same thing, though. So, we're going to do both of them. And there's actually... A clue there in verse 1 that sort of unlocks the whole of chapter 15. So it seemed fitting to uh, sort of rewind and and do the whole thing, verses 1 through 10, rather than just 8 through 10. Um, Before we start, I just want to say, I didn't think Derek would be here actually, but he's taken a a quick two-week break, so you've got to put up with me today, and then we've got a guy preaching next week. which we're incredibly grateful for, but uh, I just want to say he's, he's taken a, a brief break because pastoring is really hard. It's hard work, and the guy needs a break, and I fully support it and encourage it. And in, in fact, he desires to labor so much that he may be resistant to breaks. So um, I just would ask you all, as uh, the congregation here, to join me in praying with him over the next couple weeks, just that he would be uh, refreshed, encouraged, um, above all things, that Jesus would be his greatest treasure and love. Um, we need that desperately as your pastors. There is a, a unique burden uh, that Derek uh, carries because, you know, we, he's got to stand before the throne of God and, and give an account for, for how well he does this. And it's just a lot. It's heavy. So... I'm going to do two things. I'm going to pray for Derek, and I'm going to pray for the passage, uh, or for me as I walk through the passage um, this morning. So join me. Lord, thank you that uh, we get to come before you, um, wretched sinners who fall short of not only our own standards, but the standards of a holy and righteous God that owes us nothing but gives us everything. We thank you that we can come together as a people and 
be honest with one another as we gather here and with you uh, in light of what you've done, which invites us to come and to be honest and to be vulnerable and to share struggles and to, um, to, to be restored, to be um, loved and accepted and known by you because of the work of your Son. And Lord, we want to take a minute to thank you, especially for Derek and uh, what you've called him to and um, the work that you have done in his heart uh, to enable him to be where he's at, the giftings that you've given him. And Lord, we want to ask that you would uh, particularly be with him uh, over the next couple weeks and, and even week in and week out, Lord. Um, it's hard for a lot of us to understand uh, the burden of preaching weekly and, and, and shepherding a people to you. Uh, And so we just ask, Lord, that you lift him up, that you show him the glory of yourself, uh, that you build him up in that, and that you remind him continually that uh, he is loved, and uh, his his performance as a pastor doesn't change that, and um, help us as a a people uh, encourage him and love him well uh, as he serves us so well. Thank you for humbling him and um, enabling us uh, to to sit under his teaching um, and to be pointed to you time and time again. Um, And Lord, as I seek to unfold your word this morning, uh, you know how much help I need. Uh, Remind me of that. May I lean on you. May you open my mouth to speak only that which you desire that I would speak and help us as a people to uh, take seriously your word and to sit under it and to allow it to wash over us and to renew us. And we know we need your spirit for that to happen. So we pray that you would give him and lead us this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. So chapter 15 in the book of Luke is actually, as I mentioned, three separate parables. The first two are almost the same thing. There are some minor details in the first one that are not in the second one. Uh, And then it all kind of comes to an apex in the third parable, which is the commonly referred to as the prodigal son. Uh, But historically, I think probably we focused a little too much on Uh, the prodigal son, that is the younger brother who runs away from the father and comes back and finds forgiveness. And that is certainly a large part of the parable and something that Jesus wants us to see and be grateful for. And we see this paradigm of glorious forgiveness. But particularly when coupled with the, the, the two parables that precede it, we see that the ultimate thrust of these, the, the, the apex, the ultimate goal of Jesus is to actually reveal to the Pharisees their self-righteousness. So really, at the end, uh, the last parable, we see the elder brother at the end who is left out of the, the celebration, the party, the feast, by choice. Because he chooses to trust in himself and not in the gift of God. So we have this scene where Jesus is engaging in his ministry. We don't really know, but this is probably somewhat early on. The Pharisees don't seem to utterly hate him yet. You know, that later on in the, in the Gospels, you see things like 
you know, Jesus said this, and then they, from there on they plotted to murder him. Um, we don't have any indication of that. So this might be fairly early on in which Jesus is sort of giving a picture to these people. And they're upset. The Pharisees and the scribes and the, um, are mad at him because he is receiving tax collectors and sinners and eating with them. Um, he's, he's opened his life to these people who are, uh, by all measures of society, people who the Pharisees and scribes deem to be worthy of being ignored, to be left out, that, that don't deserve the attention that Jesus is giving them because they haven't lived up to their standard. So that's sort of the scene here. Um, and I want to cover three things here, hopefully clearly. Uh, first is uh, Jesus' challenge to the righteous, in quotes. Uh, the joy of heaven in the pursuit of the lost. So the Pharisees are mad. I, we, we've covered this, I think, kind of a lot because it's in the gospel a lot, but it doesn't hurt to repeat it. So these tax collectors are considered the absolute lowest of the low. And there are a couple reasons for that. Um, historically, uh, the Jews in particular hated them, um, but, but the, the Roman rule was kind of imposing you know, their, their imperialism on the Jewish people. And, uh, of course, the Jews don't like this. And, and part of that imposition is taxes that need to go to Rome. And so there are these people that go around and collect taxes. And, first of all, that, that money all goes to Rome. The Jews are not helped by it. Right? It goes to the imperial rule. Um, secondly, though, Jewish people had their own tax. Right? They had a tax that went to the temple, that went to the priests, and so when you couple these two taxes together, they become utterly burdensome to these people. And in addition to that, they, um, the tax collectors often just, as Derek mentioned last week, charged more than they should have. And it became a way to put a little extra money in their coffers. And they did it on the backs of the people. A guy named Daniel Ruffs um, says this. He's a, he's a French historian. He says the taxation system infuriated the Jews. Those who collected them made fortunes upon the back of the taxpayers. As I said, all this money went to Rome, and he says it's even more infuriating because most of these taxes had parallel religious taxes for the temple and the priests, and the double burden was overwhelming. He, he goes on later to, to quote somebody talking about tax collectors who says this, the tax collector whose very name was synonymous with public sinner, contemptible creature, outcast, of society. So that's the first group that we're dealing with here, that Jesus is sort of rubbing shoulders with, that these people, Pharisees, are upset about. And then you see this general term, uh, sinners. The ESV study Bible puts it like this. It says, anyone who failed to keep God's law as they, the Pharisees, interpreted it. And the term here seems to reflect a commonly understood meaning by which it included both people guilty of publicly known sin and others who did not keep the strict purity requirements of the Pharisees. So you may notice at the end of the passage, um, it says there's great joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Uh, if you're anything like me, you read that and you're like, wait, I thought all people needed repentance, right? Uh, yes, that is true. Considering the time and place, though, there were people who were thought to need public repentance. It's a different time and place. 
you know, repentance, what the heck is that in, in our time and place, right? Nobody talks about that. But back then, uh, there would have been a sense in which there was an awareness of particular sins that particular people had committed. And there would have been a, a sort of push towards a public admission of this, a public repentance. Uh, so that's, that's what he means there. Um, but, but maybe if we could draw some modern parallels to these people. I know we don't really have tax collectors per se. We do have a government, of course. Um, but um, maybe a, like a really crooked politician. Uh, but even I don't think that gets us there. But this group of sinners might include prostitutes, adulterers, uh, thieves, uh, drug addicts. Um, maybe an, an abusive strip club owner or something. They're just people that are on the fringes of society, that are excluded and that are frowned upon. And so it was scandalous for Jesus to draw near to these people. Eating with them, ministering to them, caring about them, rubbing shoulders with them, showing an active interest in their well-being. And it says the Pharisees literally continually murmured about this. Jesus perceiving this, responds to them with these parables. The basic premise of each of these is that you have a shepherd who is, has a hundred sheep. One of the sheep leaves. Jesus says, who among you doesn't go after those 99? I'm sorry, leave the 99 and go after the one. And then when you see the sheep, you tie it up, you throw it on your shoulder and you carry it back. And then after you've found it, you call all your friends and you have them come over. And you celebrate together over this one lost sheep. And then he tells a parallel parable, which is about a woman who has ten coins. She's probably fairly poor. If you only have ten coins, it's also harder for a woman to make money in that time and place. And um, she loses one coin. What does she do? She turns her house upside down in order to find the coin. The point is that the sheep is valuable... And the coin is valuable. And when each person goes after each one respectively and finds it, there is a rejoicing, there's a party, there's a happiness that attends to it and a communal celebration at the end. And we see that one sinner repenting causes this great joy in heaven. Now before we move on, I want to be careful because we, we talk about and we read about Pharisees and tax collectors, I'm sorry, Pharisees and scribes so often in these Gospels that it can be easy to kind of dismiss them. And when we read about them, to consider them as this whole other breed of people. And while it's true that Jesus gave us this parable so that we know maybe what not to do, you know, and how to truly find and know God, it's also true that, that he gave it to us as a warning because we may be prone to being pharisaical towards Pharisees. That is, we might miss our own self-righteousness when we read this. It's rather easy for us to look at this and shake our heads at the Pharisees and say, how could they behave like this? All the while totally missing the boat, a great irony that we too may be pharisaical and self-righteous. So, I, I just want to go through a few things in order to sort of gauge our hearts. 
do a little litmus test. How do you know if you're a Pharisee? Well, first, one of the things that they noted and, and, and hypervalued to an extent that they should not have was this external righteousness. They defined it as, as merely this external reality full of ceremony and tradition and uh, religious activity that was merely outward. You, you, you might liken it to, well, I go to church every week and therefore I'm a righteous person. Or I give and therefore I'm righteous. Um, they, they totally missed the boat, though, um, on what Jesus actually taught. The first problem with this is that Jesus frequently commended uh, that which was done in secret. Uh, he referred to the Pharisees as hypocrites because they did not truly value doing these things in secret. Oftentimes they wanted to be seen by other people. Right? He says when you pray, pray in your closet. Don't pray to be seen. You guys like to go out and, and, and be popular and, and, and seen and known and, and they want to appear as religiously pious but their secret prayer lives were neglected. Uh, he also said things like, when you fast, when you're spiritually fasting, don't mess up your hair and, and keel over and hold your stomach and say, oh, I'm just, I'm fasting for the Lord. I'm just really, <sighs> bear with me. Um, he said, look presentable. Don't let people know that you're doing this. There's, there's a quiet, unseen worship that was just completely missing from the Pharisees' lives. So, is that present in your life? Is, is there a private worship life that you possess? Uh, problem number two is that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount heightens the law, as it were. He, he unfolds it in a way that they had never heard before. Right? It, previously it was thought, he, well, he goes through all these things saying, you may have heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said, this, but I tell you this. And one of the things he says, you, you know, adultery is wrong. You've heard that. You know that. And he says, but I tell you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Right? We, I mean, is anybody guiltless there? Then he says something like, uh, starts talking about murder. But I tell you, he says, if you're angry, with your brother, you'll be held liable to the court, basically in the same way that you will be as murder. Because why? The stuff of murder is basically anger, right? Bitterness. It controls you and drives you to kill. So Jesus heightens the law, so to speak, for these Pharisees. And they're stuck on the old way, the traditions, the routines which is easy to check off the list. All right, so, so when we're thinking about ourselves, are we, are we thinking about the law that penetrates deeply at the motivational level, or, or are we looking at merely our, our lives externally and, and, and what we do uh, that is visible or, or that adheres to uh, the law in a non-penetrative way, so to speak? Uh, second litmus test, um, do we think that God is happiest with us when we think that we're sort of achieving the law? I want to be careful because this is a little bit nuanced because there is a sense 
in which God is pleased with obedience. There's a sense in which that is true. When it flows from a heart of faith, out of a heart of gratitude for what God has done for us, we desire uh, to please him. But there's also a sense in which we can think that he loves us because we're better than other people or because we have done A, B, C, religious tasks. Uh, I gave this much this month. God loves me more now. Uh, I serve every week. God loves me more. That is not true. And there is a sense in which we are prone to, just like the Pharisees, this thought of we have done A, B, C, Therefore, God's love for me is increased. Jesus blows this up in Matthew 9.13. He says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. The Pharisees are miserable people. That's why they're doing what they're doing. They're mad. Because they thought that relating to God happened through this rule-keeping and this personal moral merit. They thought this is what pleased God, so they strove for it with all of their being. The natural byproduct of this striving is that if, if you give it your all in the way that they did, you will begin to resent others who do not achieve like you or even attempt to achieve as hard as you. It naturally puffs you up. It becomes a miserable way to live in which you're consumed by what others are or aren't doing because secretly, deep down, underneath all the performance, you know that you're not measuring up. You know your inadequacies. You know them better than anyone else does. You may attempt to cover them all you wish, but in the end you live in fear of being exposed. We all do this. Every single person in this room fears that exposure ultimately. And so, in order to cover this up, you direct your attention towards the failings of others so that you may find temporary respite from the gnawing weight of internal and ever-present failure. I'm a professional finger pointer. My default is not to look inward and consider that I am the problem. It is to look at those people or those people or this person If you hadn't said this, I wouldn't have done this. Translation, the real problem is you. That's not the case. And then the alternative that we often speak of is that you you think you're achieving these things and you grow proud and hardened, but even that's just a, a manifestation of the knowledge of your own lack, of your inability to measure up. If the Pharisees actually knew with confidence that they were justified before God, they wouldn't feel the need to spend their time pointing out everybody else's flaws. Right? They would be comfortable knowing that they are perfectly loved and accepted by God. I have a critical spirit. I'm pharisaical. I don't want to be. But that's one way that you can know. Are you continually concerned about other people's failures? Or are you more torn up about your own that they, other people's failures sort of are pushed off to the fringes? So we should identify with them 
years ago, um, I had a conversation with a friend of mine just talking about Christianity in general, and she's an unbeliever and open to it, not actively antagonistic towards Christianity or anything, but she says, um, okay, I got, I got one for you. Um, let me know the answer to this. Um, let's say somebody lives for 80 years as a quote-unquote terrible person. In every way, shape, or form, they, they just stomp on people. They're cruel. They're rude. They're selfish. They're greedy. They don't care about anybody else but themselves. And then on their deathbed, they say, I believe in Jesus, and they convert. She says, what happens to that person? My answer is, if it's true that in that moment they believed that they were totally wretched and hopeless apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and they put their faith in his and not their own, they will spend eternity with God in heaven. How'd she respond? She was mad. Why? That's unfair. I spent my whole life being a good person. I loved people. I gave them rides when they needed it. I, I gave people extra gas money. I did this. I did that. And I tried my whole life to be a good person. And this person gets off scot-free. They were terrible for 80 years. And now all of a sudden, in that moment, they're freed from it. She's got the same heart we all have, in some sense, by the way. That reveals a mentality that is pharisaical. It says, I deserve God's love. I did it right. This person blew it. And you're blessing them, God? You're forgiving them? Be careful. How else do you know if you're a Pharisee? If you're slow to show mercy. There's this narrative that kind of flies around that says, you know, well, if somebody is struggling, if they're in this particular situation, it's their own fault. That's a half-truth, okay? We make decisions. Those decisions have consequences. They shape our realities. But it completely ignores uh, God's grace in your life. I mean, if, if we strictly believe that every single human being is where they are because of decisions that they have made, we're completely missing um, not only God's sovereignty, but, but what the Bible says about grace. I mean, I made a lot of decisions in my late teens that maybe should have landed me in jail. I didn't go to jail, praise God, thankfully. That would have altered the course of the rest of my life. Right, if I had. There are other people that probably didn't do nearly as much as I did that went to jail, and their lives are totally altered because of it. So this narrative that, that people that are struggling just need to pull up their bootstraps and make better decisions and climb themselves out of the hole completely ignores mercy that you've received. And, and the way that you know that you're aware that you've received mercy is if you're quick to give it to those people. If you're quick to understand that maybe you blew it just like they did. So, if you're slow to show mercy, uh, you might be a Pharisee. I feel like, wasn't there like a comedy bit about 
You might be a oh, redneck, that's what it is. You might be a Pharisee if. Um, uh, okay, lastly, and then we'll move on to point two. If you do not at all rub shoulders with outcasts, you might be Pharisaical. If your life is perpetually filled with people that you are comfortable with, that make things easier on you, whom you enjoy the company of, uh, that places no burden of any kind on you, you may be Pharisaical. In, in religious America, I use the term loosely, but um, sort of Bible beltish kind of pseudo-religiosity, that holier-than-thou mentality has kind of led... Um, these pockets of thinking that say things like, you know, we don't want to hang out with those people because they will negatively influence us and we will become like them. Um, I, I just, when I was growing up, I kind of grew up in the church, and, and it was subtle. Uh, nobody outwardly said this, but there was this idea that you were your friends, so much so that you don't want to draw too near to those people because they'll infect you. You know, it'll mess you up. It'll drag you down. Um, that, too, is something of a half-truth that Jesus completely explodes, right? I mean, the only perfect guy that ever lived is hanging out with the worst people on earth. So while it is true that we're, of course, influenced by other people, Jesus gives us a paradigm by which we are to operate, and that is that the goal of Jesus in hanging out with these people ultimately is to give them the greatest gift that they can have, and that is a restored relationship with God. So he's leading them, hopefully, to repentance, which he does very uh, wisely and slowly. In, in all of these meals, by the way, in all of the Gospels, to my knowledge, there is not a single moment in which he is calling out their sins. He's first just eating with them. He's spending time with them. He's drawing near to them. So he didn't hang out with these folks because he was bored or lonely or he was looking for meaning. Meaning, He did so because he wanted to give them new and true life. His welcome of them was not without a call to repentance. Right? But he was intentional about the way that he got there. He didn't stand far off and yell at them Repent, you sinner! How many people do you know have been converted like that? I know zero. Um, he drew near. He drew near. Are we drawing near to people on the fringes of society? Or even maybe people in our families that are really hard to get along with, that need the gospel? Are we present? Are we near them? Look, I'm really quick to say, okay, you're doing this, this, and this wrong, and here's what you need to do, this, this, and this. I'm, I'm too quick to go there, just honestly. We need to allow some room to be present, to draw near, to hear, to love, so that folks can ultimately see the glory of God and turn to Him. Okay, point number two. The joy of heaven. 
One of, uh, and I think this is true of all of us, but another one of my tendencies is to consider God by most of his attributes, not all of them. That is to say, I tend to have a thought of God like, okay, he's a king, he's above all things, he's all-powerful, he has created everything, he doesn't want for anything, He's a perfect judge. Everything that he says is righteous. He's totally wise. Those are all true and good things. This text gives us something wonderful, though, that I tend to forget. God is happy. God is a happy God. Isn't that a good thing? I forget that so quickly. there are some things that actually bring him great joy. And one of those joys to God is a saved sinner. One of those joys is when one of these wicked sinners that he has created, who has rebelled against him greatly, run away from him, wanted nothing to do with him, by grace comes to their senses and says, what a fool I am and have been. And recognizes their helplessness and rebellion, and lowers themselves, and cries out for mercy. By God's grace, this miracle happens in people. In this moment, that human being goes from hopeless, lifeless, condemned, and broken, to hope-filled, alive, accepted, blameless, redeemed, treasured, and whole. Eternally. This event is not limited to earthly joy. There is joy on earth when this happens, I hope. But there's an unseen glory and rejoicing in all of heaven over this reality. It's really kind of profound when you think about it because does anything at all happen in the world outside of the context of maybe five people when somebody believes in Jesus, right? It is not even a blip on the radar of this massive globe. But this little moment, heaven cares about. Heaven cares deeply about. God cares. The angels care. They collectively celebrate over single souls these seemingly insignificant earthly nobodies that turn from self to God set off joyous clamoring. It's good news, isn't it? I, you ever grow discouraged about how meek sometimes the things of Christianity seem? I mean, we gather here week in and week out and there are these glimpses of joy and glory, but sometimes it feels a little monotonous. Um, we meet in this gym. It's not super special. Sometimes it smells bad. Uh, it's, it's not glamorous, right? This does not feel glorious. But in heaven, there is another narrative. It is glorious. It is utterly glorious. Don't be fooled by the immediate of what is in front of you, of only what we can see. Jesus is saying there's more joy in heaven over one single sinner 
that repent than over 99 righteous ones. So, let's use this as motivation. It's hard to deal with hard people. Newsflash, right? You knew that. There's more going on than meets the eye. We ought to pursue these opportunities with those on the fringe, knowing that what truly, eternally, deeply matters um, is not seen here all the time in clear fashion. But it exists. And because Jesus has a particular care for those who have been rejected by the world, that ought to be our particular care as well. You know what else it means? Uh, repentance is joyous. Repentance is a joyous activity. Um, years ago when we were actually in the early stages of this church being planted, we would go door to door and just kind of knock and say hey to people and give them a card and just let you know we're here. Um, and I, we ran into, I think David maybe was there. I can't remember, but uh, we ran into a guy who was a friend of a friend that I sort of knew, and he invited us in, and we got to talking, and he was like, oh, yeah, Christianity? No. And I'm like trying to pull it out of him, and he was so reluctant to talk about it. Um, but he said at one point in time, you know, he, he like went to confession or something, and the guy told him to take a rock, literally, and put it in his shoe for a week. You know, after what he had done wrong. Um, that's ridiculous if you didn't already know that. Um, is this what we think about repentance? Is this kind of how we frame it in our minds? This act of contrition that is maybe forced and kind of contrived in which we self-deprecate um, to the extent that it is actually something that is atoning for our wrong. Is that your view? Because that's not what it is. Repentance is a, a change of mind, literally metanoia. You turn from yourself and you turn to God. You say, I blew it. You know, I, I don't have it together. And God, you're eternally good and eternally glorious. Forgive me. And that is pleasing to God. That's a great joy. It's a great delight to him. We ought not to walk around beating ourselves up with asceticism. It doesn't do any good. So, number three, lastly, uh, the picture of pursuit. Verses two, three through eight give us um, a little bit of a clearer picture of the way that God pursues us. They both do, right? The guy loses the sheep and he leaves 99 sheep to go after this one, and the woman loses the coin and she turns her house upside down. Right? That is intended to communicate the extent to which God is willing to go after us. And there's kind of a strange tension in the text, one which I really struggled with, and I was kind of back and forth, uh, because on the one hand, does anybody really leave 99 sheep to go after one? Probably not. Because what happens when you leave 99 is that you leave them vulnerable to lose even more sheep, right? Furthermore, in the coin illustration, 
The woman loses a coin, sweeps the house, undoes everything, finally finds it. What does she do? She invites friends over to celebrate, which you are most certainly going to have to entertain, which probably costs money. So, there's sort of this tension in which Jesus is saying, don't you leave 99 sheep to go get the one? It is intended to illustrate God's reckless abandon in coming after us. There's 99 sheep over there. You're going to go to get one? That's what God does. It's not what we do. But he pursues us with ferocity. This first parable uses uh, sheep in the illustration. And uh, Jesus is always talking about sheep. He calls us sheep, actually. Um, it might seem endearing, uh, but it's actually a little bit insulting. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if you're aware of that, but sorry to bear the bad news here. Uh, but it's actually glorious in the end. So uh, one pastor, I don't even know the source. It was anonymous, but he says, um, this is paraphrased, sheep are dumb. They follow one another, and when they go astray, they lose all sense of direction. Right, A cat or a dog might have an idea of where they came from and where they're going and how to turn around and find their way back. Sheep? Nope. They just keep walking. I mean, somebody said they, they're so dumb they might even just walk right off a cliff. They just go. They just wander. Um, and then he says, even when they're found, it's difficult to round them up. Even when the rescuer is there, it is hard to grab them. And so what you must do, if you don't have a dog to, to walk the sheep back home, basically... You have to seize the sheep, throw him down, tie his hind legs and front legs together, and throw him over your shoulder and carry him back. That is what God does in his love for us. There is a one-way pursuit of the almighty, righteous God coming after rebellious people that are running away from him. This is not a cooperative situation. God's love is ferocious. It is a one-way pursuit. I don't, I don't know that there is a more profoundly wonderful reality in all of Christianity. That as I was a dumb, wandering sheep that wanted nothing to do with God, He ran after me at my worst, and He snatched me and said, You will be mine. There's a hymn that puts it like this. It says, I was a wandering sheep. I did not love the fold. I did not love my shepherd's voice. I would not be controlled. I was a wayward child. I did not love my home. I did not love my father's voice. I loved afar to roam. The shepherd sought his sheep. The father sought his child. They followed me o'er vale and hill, o'er deserts waste and wild. They found me nigh to death. Famished and faint and lone, they bound me with the bands of love. They saved the wandering one. If you're a Christian this morning, that is your narrative. God chased you down and he bound you. And he rescued you and he threw you over his shoulder and he said, You are coming with me and you are now my adopted child. Now, 
some of you might be saying, well, wait, don't you have to repent? Isn't the whole thing talking about the person repenting? Yes, absolutely. That is all over Scripture, a thousand times yes. The call is to repentance. The question that we have to consider is what leads somebody to repentance? The short answer is God's rescue. God, in his pursuit, enables the repentance of a hard and calloused heart. We are wandering sheep, and then God comes to us. Then he rescues us. Then we see his glory. Then we say, I see clearly now. What causes somebody who's hardened, who's running, who's rebellious, to suddenly say, aha, you know what? I, God is so good, and I'm just a wretch. What makes that happen? God's pursuit. It's all over Scripture. I'm going to rifle through some so we can see how lavish God's love towards us is. 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John chapter 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one who you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Romans 9:16 b It depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. Some of you might know that what I'm talking about is semi-controversial. <laughs> like thousands of years, theological debates controversial. And I, I want you to know that I'm not saying this because I love arguing. Um, and certainly you'll find people that want to argue for the sake of it. The reason that I'm bringing this up is, one, because I think it's in the passage and I believe it's in the Bible. I believe it's what the Bible teaches elsewhere. And my job this morning is to teach you what's in the Bible. Second, there are implications for our lives with this. Um, I didn't always believe what I just taught you, so to speak. Um, there was a time in my life when I, I, I thought there was sort of a the theological term is synergism, like a cooperation between man and God to, to come to salvation. Um, and my posture uh, was a lot different then towards people who didn't believe. What was it like? Well, it was a little shorter because I chose God and I made the right decision and you did not. So, it's your fault. Be on your merry way. If you won't buy this Christianity that I'm putting before you, which I believe to be true and I'm wholeheartedly convinced of, it is on your head, it is on your, it's your fault. Go. Be done. You need to make the right choice. You didn't make it. I did. You see the posture there? I was proud that I made the right decision. And it inevitably 
caused me to look down on other people. Because I chose correctly and they didn't, right? This might be subtle, but eventually, if you don't affirm that God pursued you and rescued you entirely, and it was his work entirely, not yours, at some point, when you trace it out, you have to say, I've got a little bit of merit in there. I contributed a little bit to what happened to me. God might have done 99.99999% of it, but there's just this little bit that I contributed. I don't think that's what the Scripture teaches, and I think it also gives us a platform for false righteousness. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when first I received those truths in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown all of a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once for all the clue to the truth of God. I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Secondly, an implication here is that if my salvation ultimately depends on me, I have no good news. I have potential good news. Why? Because I would live in perpetual anxiety that I would blow it. If I'm the one holding this together, as it were, why should I have any assurance at all? Do you know, you probably don't, how much my heart wavers. I wish that I could say that I wake up in the morning and I'm delighted to hear the alarm go off because my heart is so utterly filled with the joys of God. And it just carries me through all situations at all times. And I'm just weeping in the shower because I'm so happy to know God. I wish I could tell you that. It's not true. My life, and I think it's true for everyone, excuse me, by the way, my life goes like this. Jesus is amazing and glorious, and I feel his presence, and he is near, and I see my sin so clearly, and I'm so grateful for his sacrifice and everything that he's done. And then there are seasons or moments or hours in which I feel so indifferent, which my heart is cold and lifeless, and I'm so often faithless. So these things beg the question, is my faith strong enough? Will it sustain me? What is my assurance that I will not walk away from God tomorrow? Do I have any assurance other than my own faithfulness. If I'm the only one that made this happen, if it ultimately depends on my holding on to him, I have no real footing. Romans 5 says that 
God died for me while I was yet a sinner. While I was weak. While I was helpless. God's love to me is not his response of my love for him, but vice versa. Now, I should have said this earlier. You don't have to believe that to be a member of Stonehouse, okay? We have a statement of beliefs and uh, basic beliefs and a statement of faith that you should read, and those are central tenets of Christianity that we believe that you need to affirm uh, in order to uh, be a member here. Then we have doctrinal distinctives, uh, which we would hope that you would believe, and that's what this falls under, uh, but, but they're not crucial. We don't think that you have to affirm this to be a Christian. Uh, but as I said, I think there are clear implications. And uh, to believe, as I believe Scripture teaches, that it was all God, that it had absolutely nothing to do with me, leaves you in a unique position of all in which you are saying, why me? I am not worthy. That sinner, that outcast, that tax collector, that's me. That is me. The only difference is grace. The only difference is God looked at me and said, you're mine. I didn't weigh my options and say, I figured it out. Jesus came and got me. I think it matters. I think it, it, it shapes the way that we look at things. I think grace is fuller. Close with Isaiah 53, verse 6. It says that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've gone from lost and wayward orphans to rescued, adopted sons and daughters because Jesus Christ himself chose to be cut off, chose to reach out to those on the fringe, you and me. We were outcasts rightfully because of what we had done. Jesus came and got us. And on the cross, God turned his back on him, as it were, and laid our iniquity, your sin and my sin, onto Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead, and so too will we be if we are in him. And every week we celebrate this reality with communion. The reason that we do it every week is because I think it's important to come to this table because we're very quick to forget it. It's easy to forget it in a, a bustling world. But this right here is an ordinance that Jesus gave us that we may come to him over and over and over again to fill our hearts with the narrative that we were wayward sheep that should have remained astray. But instead he chose to have his body broken and his blood spilled, that we might be restored. So we're going to do a few more songs. Communion is there. Uh, if and when you are ready, will you pray with me? Lord, 
praise be to you that you look down on wretches like us and you don't say, well, they screwed it up. I guess I'll move on. You have a heart that longs for us, that wants to have us badly. We know that because you didn't just leave 99 sheep. You didn't just turn a house upside down to find a coin. You left heaven. You left a throne, a perfect throne of eternal happiness to come down and live with peasants and self-righteous people that you created that reject you, that mocked you, that despised you, that scorned you, that crucified you. Thank you that we have new life because of your gift. May we be repentant people that truly find life in you. Thanks for running after us, sustaining us, holding us, keeping us. It's in Christ's name. Amen.